This morning, I wanted to talk um, a little bit about the topic of faith. Last time I got up here, um, I asked uh, some volunteers to come forward to illustrate something. And what, what I told them was that the people out in the seats there, they represent the, the outside world, the unchurched world. And the people up here that I invited up um, would represent the church. And what I did, I asked them to demonstrate or illustrate the love and, and community that we have in the, in the body of Christ by forming a circle and holding hands. And predictably, they did that. And so they came around here and they formed a circle and they held hands with each other. And what was the problem? <laughs> you know, we are loving each other, we're holding hands with each other, we're enjoying each other's company, but we've got our back to the outside world, and inadvertently, we end up being a picture of the inward-focused church. So what I did was I asked them to just continue holding hands and forming a circle, but to turn outward. We still are holding hands, we're still connected with each other in community, but our focus is on the outside world. And why is that? Why, why is that important to us? It's because... We want those friends and family and neighbors to come to faith in Christ because we think that that would be a real blessing in their lives. Um, and so we talk to them about faith. And in the Christian community, we get together and we pray in faith and somebody's sick and we'll pray in faith for them. And the idea of faith really kind of permeates the church. We sang about it a lot this morning. But what I've found is that for a lot of people... Faith is kind of a confusing thing. And what I want to do this morning, I want to talk about life-changing faith. And when we're done, what I would like to accomplish is that, number one, that you understand what the Bible means by faith. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of you are pretty confused by that. And the second thing that I want to do is I want you to be able to communicate what life-changing faith is to people in the outside world so that they're not so confused because there's a tremendous amount of confusion in the world about what faith is. In fact, even people outside of the church tend to weigh in on faith. Um, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, um, he had this to say, so faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, perhaps even because of the lack of evidence. Religion is capable of driving people to such dangerous extreme and folly that faith seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. So that's one view of faith. I think he's a little confused on that. But even within the church, I... Um, I read this quote by Joel Osteen, who is a pastor of an enormous church in, in Texas, and, and Professor Osteen said this, faith means to believe that there are great things in your future. Believe for explosive blessings. You've got to pray for big things. You've got to believe big things. And then he prays, Lord, healing is on the way. Freedom is on the way. The right person is on the way. Abundance is on the way. That's how we touch God today. So what is faith exactly? Richard Dawkins has his definition. It's an excuse to avoid the need to think. Joel Osteen has his definition, which is somewhat confusing and, and rambling, but it has something to do with um, believing really hard, 
and getting God to do things that he otherwise wouldn't have done and somehow putting this formula together to get God to, to bring blessings and the right person and abundance and all of these things into our lives. And I don't think that that's what faith is. But there are these confusing stories and we hear them all the time. I went to the doctor and they took an x-ray and they found this terrible disease in me and so I went home and I prayed and I believed and I really believed and I, I got together with my life group and they all prayed over me and we all believed and we, we had faith and I went back to the doctor and he took an x-ray and there was nothing there and I was, I was cured. Or it goes like this. I lost my job on Monday. On Tuesday, I met with my life group and we all prayed over my situation. And on Wednesday, I got a better job with more pay. And so you think, wow, that's what faith looks like. And something bad happens to you and you go and you pray and you believe and you, you really believe. And you get your life group together and they pray over you and they really believe big, bold prayers. And nothing happens. So what do you do? Well, you might think about getting a new life group, for one. <laughs> or you say, something's wrong with me. Or something's wrong with God. Because isn't that what faith is supposed to be? We believe and we put our faith and God comes through. And the problem with that is I call that like Sunday school faith or kindergarten faith. You know, all versions of faith work for little kids, right? Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, all of these things work for little kids. But when we grow up, we have to have an adult faith. And people with that Sunday school faith get disillusioned and they start leaving the church. And I've got to believe that that's a big part of the reason for articles like, like this that millennials are leaving the churches in droves. Because if they had any faith at all, it was kindergarten faith, and now they don't know what to believe. And they hear somebody like Richard Dawkins, and they go, hmm, maybe that makes sense, because the faith that I grew up with isn't working for me. So we're going to talk this morning about what faith is. We're going to talk about what faith isn't. We're going to talk about what it actually means to live by faith. But let's pray together first. God. We invite you, we invite your Holy Spirit to be here. We know, God, that we cannot understand spiritual truth apart from your Holy Spirit. So I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that your Spirit would lead them, guide them, that the words that I speak would be true, and that, uh, Lord, you would convict them of truth. And Lord, we pray that we get this thing about faith right, because it truly is life-changing. Amen. Well, given all the confusion about faith that's out there, wouldn't it be great if the Bible just told us what faith is, so that we don't have to have all this confusion and everything about it? Well, guess what? The Bible does exactly that. In fact, we read about that this morning. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
The Bible tells us exactly what faith is in Hebrews chapter 11. And there's two things about this that I want you to understand. The first is the basis for our faith. And the second is the definition of faith. We'll start with the basis. So let me ask you a question. As a Christian, what is the basis of your faith? Okay, so when we're in church and somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, it's always safe to go with Jesus. <laughs> you all just say Jesus. Can you just say Jesus? Okay, so with a little bit more alacrity, what is the basis of our faith? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, so Jesus himself is the basis of our faith. What exactly does that mean? Well, here's what we believe. In fact, the world can be a scary and unpredictable place, and bad things happen to good people, and we don't know why, but there is one thing that we can be absolutely sure of, and that is where we stand with God. We can know that God loves us, and the reason we can know this is because God did not stay distant, but he came down, and he lived with us, and he demonstrated his love for us, and he showed us who God is, and faith is the key to knowing where we stand with God. The people that the book of Hebrews was written to were being severely persecuted. They were oppressed. God wasn't answering their prayers in the way that they thought that he should. They were actually a lot like us. And what Hebrews 11 and 12 teach us is when you're going through difficult times, what you need to do is you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12 too says, run the race with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So if you want to understand faith, you've got to start with Jesus. And you've got to start with fixing your eyes on Jesus. There is one core issue with Christianity and faith, and that is, I really needed you to be with me on that one. There is one core issue of Christianity and faith, and that is Jesus, Jesus right? So it's focusing, it's fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the direction. Some people um, are still confused about what faith is. Um, it's not a power that you conjure up. It's not a religion. It's not a philosophy. Christianity begins and ends with Jesus. And if we don't have that foundation, we'll quickly run off the rails. So I want to talk with you today because there's still this confusion about what faith is. And some of you are at a point where you're thinking about walking away from the faith. And some of you are sitting in your seat this morning and nobody knows on the outside but in your own mind, you've kind of checked out. You're kind of going through the motions because you just don't really understand this, this faith thing and it doesn't seem to be working for you. I had a friend, have a friend. He went to this church. He was involved. He was in an e-group. He was in men's ministry. Um, he, was, he was very involved. And his wife filed for divorce and he went through some other problems and some, some other significant issues in his life. And he stayed around for a while, but eventually he stopped going to church. Because he thought that faith was something that it really isn't. 
And I've heard people's stories. I've heard people's stories of walking away from the faith. I've seen that in our own family, so we're touched by that as well. And in virtually every encounter, that loss of faith, that questioning of faith has nothing to do with Jesus. The story usually goes like this, like my friend. Life was good, family was good, job was good. And then I lost, my marriage blew up. I lost my relationship with my kids. I felt like I lost everything. God wasn't good anymore. I mean, I listened to Joel Osteen, and we thought prosperity was on the way, and all these good things were on the way, and I really believed, and it didn't happen. And so I've checked out. God didn't come through. And the good news of Christianity is not that God will take away your problems. The good news of Christianity is Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Even though we rebelled against God and turned away from him and we were spiritual orphans, God loved us too much to leave us that way. And so he sent his son so that we could know what God is like and he went to the cross and he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven for our sin and our rebellion. And this demonstration of God's love opens the door so that you can have a loving relationship with your heavenly father. And what part of that good news is, has anything to do with life turning out the way that you hoped that it would? You see, we got to understand what the good news is. And the good news is not prosperity. The good news is not God blessing you with all of these things. The good news is that God demonstrates his love towards us. And that when we were far away, when we wanted nothing to do with him, he pursued us and he continues to pursue us. What do people fix their faith to? A lot of us, fix our faith to circumstances. Thought God said my marriage would be good and my job would be prosperous. And Hebrews says that there's only one thing to fix our eyes on and that's Jesus. So the basis of faith is Jesus. The definition of faith we read before. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Another way to put this is faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. So then we've got to go back and say, well, what are we hoping for? Are we hoping for prosperity? What are we hoping for? We need to understand hope. So hope is wanting something without any guarantee, right? It's a, I hope I get a raise. I hope I get a promotion. I hope she says yes. I, I, I'm just hoping, but I don't have any, anything behind that. I don't have any reason other than just hope for hoping um, for, for what, what I want. And so, um, Ken Beshore was my college youth pastor, and um, he had a great way of illustrating this. And so, here's what he says. Faith happens, and I love this, when hope so becomes confident that it will be so. I gave you, gave you some notes in there and a couple of things that you can just kind of jot down um, as we go through. But I love this one. Faith happens when hope so becomes confident that it will be so. So how does that happen? How do we go from hope so to confident that it will be so? And I love Kenton's analogy. He says this. He says, 
You hope, you hope, you hope you get a raise, and you keep hoping for that raise. And when does hope so become confident that it will be so? When your boss walks into the office and says, I'm giving you a raise. And you go home and you talk to your spouse and get this, you do not say, I hope I'm getting a raise, right? You haven't gotten any more money. That's going to come weeks down the road. But you say, I got a raise. Why? Because of the promise that your boss made and because he has done what he said he would do in the past. So you got that? Hope so becomes confident that it will be so. We'll try this, we'll, we'll, we'll try a different analogy for those of you who think differently. So I hope she'll go out on a date with me. I hope, I hope, I hope she'll go out on a date with me. So I send her a text message. <laughs> And when does hope so become confident that it will be so? When she sends back a note, a text message that says, 6.30 sounds great. So, you see that? It's, it's really that simple. Faith is the confidence that hope so becomes confident that it will be so. And it becomes that way because of a promise. Romans 4 is such a great example. It just, it just puts all of this in a real-life person, and it talks about hope, and it talks about promise. And this is what God promised to Abraham. He, he said that he would fill his life with tremendous blessings. And he did, right? He did all, I mean, Abraham was one of the wealthiest people, probably the wealthiest person in his generation. God blessed him with all kinds of things. And Abraham was a, a blessed man. He had faith in God. But God had promised him that he would have a son and that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky. And Abraham got to be 100 years old. And he, he and Sarah still hadn't had a child together. And here's what Romans says, here's Paul's commentary on that. In hope against hope, so remember hope? So in hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was promised, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet in respect to the what? promise of God, he did not waver in disbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had, what? Promised, he was also able to perform. Do you see the tie-in? God promised him, he believed that, and it was, he was confident that it would be so, being fully assured that God was going to come through in his promises. Hebrews 11 has often been called the, the hall of faith. And it references Old Testament believers who had great faith. Some of the people that we've talked about in our ongoing origin series, right? Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. All these stories are this. The same story. God gave them a promise and they lived as if it was true. 
God gave them a promise. They believed that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do, and they acted on that. God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. And it says that these people of great faith, they conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouth of lions. This is incredible. They, they, they escaped the edge of the sword. People were raised from the dead. This is incredible stuff. You want that, right? And Hebrews says this, in the same vein, others experienced mockings and scourgings and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Let your mind get around that. They died by the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And these were the people in God's hall of faith. These are the best people there are. But I will tell you that none of these people tried to faith God into something. None of these people thought that they could get God to do what they wanted to do by just having enough faith and by believing. They believed the promise that God was with them and God would walk with them, but the promise was not an easy life. And these people were, were killed, they were afflicted, they were destitute, they were mistreated. People in the hall of fame. It wasn't the promise of an easy life. It was a provision through Jesus to restore our relationship with God. And that's what they hung their hat on. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible comes out of the book of Daniel. And it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, your Sunday school story, right? But here's the story in summary. Nebuchadnezzar's the king. And some of his officers don't like these three Jewish guys who worship a different God. And so they have this idea to get rid of them and they come to the king and they say, we've got this great idea. We'll build this big gold statue of you and then we'll play the music. And as soon as the music starts, everybody has to bow down and worship this statue, this gold statue of, of you. And of course, the king thought that was a great idea. And so they went for that and they implemented it. And then they, they came to the king. There's these three uh, Jewish guys and they're not bowing down before your altar. So it says that Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage of anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. Now, the king really actually kind of liked these guys. He had put them in a position of authority, and they have done a really good job, and he, he kind of likes them. So he pulls them together, and he basically says, look, guys, I can't believe that you didn't worship my statue. But... I'm going to give you a do-over, okay? We're going to cue the music. We're started up again. And when the music starts, you just bow down before the, before the, the altar and everything's going to be good, okay? All, all's, all's forgiven. And they replied to the king, um, I don't need a do-over, you know? You don't have to cue the music. You don't have to do any of that because there's no way that we're worshiping anybody but the God of heaven, and so sure enough, they, they throw him in the furnace. You know, you know what happens. And, but they, they tell uh, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if he does not, what a great way to pray. Can you imagine? I'm, I'm sure that 
A lot of those people in, in Hebrews in the hall of fame, the hall of faith, uh, prayed those prayers, right? That God is able to deliver me from this situation. But even if he doesn't, and sometimes he didn't, we will not worship anyone but God. That's the kind of faith that Hebrews is talking about. The problem is, some bad theology tends to creep in here. And the, the question is, what has God promised? Right? If we're going to believe in the promises of God, what are those promises? And this is where the bad theology creeps in. So there are verses that people take out of context or they read them wrong and they come to ideas that God has promised something that he never promised. Romans 8, 28 is one of those examples. Romans 8, 28 um, is what I call a feel-good verse, okay? It says, all things work together for good. And some people just put a period there. And so what that means to them is, if I lose my job, I'm going to get a better job. If I wanted to marry the girl, but she said no, well, that just means God has a better spouse for me in the future. And if something goes wrong, it just means that God's going to correct that and he's going to make it even better in the future. And that is not the promise of Romans 8.28. Because you have to keep reading. Verse 29 is the key to verse 28. But the construction of the verse in 8.28 literally says this. You know, we, we write as God walk, works all things together for good, but it's actually constructed like this. It says, in all things, God is working together for good. And the emphasis is the all things. All things happen to Christians. All the things that happen to everybody else in the world out there happen to us, okay? Christians get cancer. Christians get in car accidents. Christians have terrible things that happen to them. All the things that happen to everybody else happens to us. That's what Paul's saying here. And in that, God works those things for good. So how does that happen? Verse 29 says this. If we don't link verse 28 to verse 29, we end up with really bad theology. So 29 says this, for or because those he foreknew, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And what happens is we get all hung up on this word predestined and then we go down this theological road trying to figure out what does that mean, predestined? That's not what Paul's emphasizing here. What Paul's emphasizing here is predestined means it's certain, And so God is working in verse 28. God is working all things together for good. Those he foreknew, these he also predestined to become conformed to his son. So the point is that God, the thing that's certain, the thing that is predestined, the thing that's absolutely written in stone is that God is conforming you to the image of Christ. That's what Romans 8, 28 and 29 is saying. And if you belong to him, there is something that is absolutely fixed, and that is that you will be made like Jesus. Tim Keller puts it this way. God does not promise you better life circumstances. 
He promises you a better life. Your job is a circumstance. Marriage is a circumstance. Jesus promises a joy that goes beyond circumstances. And Keller says this, and I love this. Jesus did not suffer so that you would not suffer, but that when you suffer, you will become like him. And the promise is that he will change your essence into the essence of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the term from which we get our our English word metamorphosis. He's saying, it's not this trite, everything works together for good. You know, in terms of circumstance, he's saying that everything in your life, good or bad, is changing you, molding you, transforming you, metamorphosizing you into the image of Christ. That's what we can put our confidence in, not our circumstances. Romans 5.8 does not say that God demonstrates his love for you in this, that bad things will never happen to you, that your children will never face difficulty, that you will never struggle in your job or in your marriage. But he demonstrates his love for you in this, that when you are angry and a sinner and wanting nothing to do with God, he didn't wait for you to figure it out. But he came down and he entered into time, space, history, and he loved you and he sent his son Jesus to show you what God is like. And he went to the cross and he died for your sins so that you could be forgiven and that you could have an eternal relationship with your heavenly father. That's the promise. And he kept that promise despite the cost to himself. You know, of all the world religions, Christianity is the only one that has its foundation in an historical event. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead to validate his promise to us, we should check out. We've got no reason getting together on Sunday morning. The reality of the cross and Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of the promise. How do we know that God keeps his promise? Because he has kept his promise in the past, and he will continue to do so in the future. God makes this promise to us. If we acknowledge our brokenness and sin has separated us from God, that God himself came to earth to die in our place so that we can stand before him forgiven, and if we place our trust completely in him to save us, our relationship with God will be restored. And we can know that he's conforming us to the image of Jesus and that that will continue throughout our life. That we can live a loving relationship with God today and in the future, we'll be like him. I don't profess to know what that means, but that's my hope, that he will conform me to his image and I will become like him beyond my comprehension. Our hope so becomes confident that it will be so. And that's the basis of our faith because he keeps his promise. Let's pray. Father, whatever life circumstances you give us, we believe your promise that you are using those things to make us more like Jesus. Father, forgive us for the times that we've doubted you because of our our circumstances in life, not understanding that those circumstances are conforming us into your image. Father, may we be the most confident people because we know 
We don't just hope, but we hope with a reason. And we know that you have entered into our, our world. You are working in our lives and you will conform us to the image of Christ. Father, we love you for that. We love that you initiated the relationship and that you will complete the relationship. And so, Father, we just thank you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I was thinking about this this morning, I think there's kind of three groups of people here. There are those for whom the faithfulness of God is settled in your mind. And, um, you know, that, that's a blessing. There are those who are, like I said, kind of sitting on the fence, you know, kind of, kind of not so sure because of life circumstances. And if, if we can help you in any way to, to get through that and to work through it, and the best thing is just kind of have somebody that you can share with. And then thirdly, there's folks here who have really haven't crossed that line of faith yet. They haven't made the decision that I'm going to follow Christ and I want to be like him and I want a relationship with God. And if that describes you, I'd love to just chat with you. I'm going to stand up here for just a little while after the service and just be available for those folks who just have some questions about faith or are interested in, in kind of getting a little bit more clarity. And I'd, I'd love to have, give you my card and have a chance to talk with you a little bit about that. But as you go today, would you just reflect on all of your life circumstances and think how those things God is using to conform you to the image of Christ. So go with him today and have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks.